Let's pray before we uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel, that it has the power to change us for time and for eternity. And we know that because of dealing with eternal matters, that they're not always easy for us to grasp because we are very much time and space oriented. Help us tonight again to grasp for the first time or for the hundredth time the wonder of the message of salvation. We pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of a a certain age, you will be familiar with the term, this is your life. Yeah, if you look perplexed, others smile. Eamon Andrews, I was going to say Eamon Holmes, Eamon Andrews from 1955, would you believe it, to 1987. And then who replaced him? Michael Aspel. Michael Aspel from 1987 to 2003 when, thankfully, the program ended. Um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean that. Yeah. For, for the information of those who are younger, it was a kind of biographical TV documentary where guests were surprised when, you know, Eamon or Michael would step out from the background and say, so-and-so, this is your life. And they would be surprised by this. There would be a presentation uh, of their past life. And the presentation was made in a big red book, and the big red book was handed over to the surprise guest at the end of the program. Now, in days when there was only three TV channels, this was a right riveting watch, I can assure you. We were easily amused in those days. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, has a this-is-your-life kind of feel to it. Except it's not just our past that Paul deals with, but also our present and our future. Now, normally, in This Is Your Life TV program, the program reported the nice, the good, the positive parts of the life of the surprised guest. However, here, particularly in the first three verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians, we're told the not-so-nice, not-so-good and not-so-positive aspects of our lives without Jesus Christ. But in these verses, chapter 2, 1 to 10, Paul displays for all to see what it means to, to receive salvation, what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul began to introduce to us the great power of God towards believers back in chapter 1, verse 19. He digressed for a few verses to discuss that particular power of God in Christ's life. Now, he returns to show us his great power in our salvation. So, tonight we're going to look at verses 1 to 7, and then, God willing, next Sunday evening, verses 8 to 10. And we've got two main points with some sub-points. The first thing we want to notice is life without Jesus Christ. That's what's explained and shown for us in the first three verses. But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires 
and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Life without Christ, it's not a pretty picture, those first three verses, is it? It's a, it's a grim read. It's this kind of in-your-face truth and reality. It describes all humans without Christ. The word you there in verse 1 is plural. In other words, this is universal. Verse 3, just in case there's any doubt, all of us, all of us. So this is the atheist as well as the archbishop. This is the terrorist as well as the teacher. This is the murderer as well as your mummy. What do we like? What do we like without Christ? Well, there's three things that this passage says. First of all, we're dead. We're dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By birth, by nature, we're dead. This comes, of course, from our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, in the garden. When they sinned, they began to die physically, but they instantly died spiritually. Okay? So physically they began to die, spiritually they instantly died. And we inherit that death from them, that spiritual death. We're born spiritually dead. Dead in what? Two words you will notice there, transgressions and sins. Transgressions is the acts of commission. It's crossing the line. We know where the line is. God has set the line. What do we do? We go beyond the line. We go beyond the limit. We commit acts of treason. The word sins there describes acts of omission. In other words, we don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't hit the mark. God says, there's the target. We want you to hit the target. What do we do? We don't get anywhere near the target. So acts of commission, acts of omission. We're dead. We're dead. We have no ability to respond to the things of God. We have no interest in the things of God. We're dead as a dodo, cold, dead cold to God. Dead, unable to respond to God. Are you getting the picture? It's grim, isn't it? We have no interest in God, not just because we don't want to show interest in God, but because we can't show interest in God. Because a dead person can't show interest in anything because they're dead. Now, folks, you've got to understand the plight that we're in without Christ before we'll be able to understand the provision of God. Plight, provision. Two good P's to remember. Our plight is that we are dead. The provision of Christ is that we're made alive. So unless God does something really, really powerful, we will remain dead. We will remain dead. That means, folks, you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. You can be a walking dead person, like a spiritual zombie. Physically alive, spiritually dead. So for these folks in Ephesus, alive to Ephesus, but 
dead to God. Alive to trade, to sport, to religion, to romance, but dead to God. And this is the same for you and for me. We can be alive to life, but dead to Him. Without Christ, see it, friends, see it. We are dead. And what do you need if you're dead? Life. Isn't that right? You, you, you need to be reborn. And how do you receive life? How do you receive this new beginning, this new creation? Through a new birth. That's why the gospel is very clear about this. More about that in a few moments' time. The Bible is consistent, it's logical, it's sensible. We're dead, and therefore we need life. Life without Jesus Christ is that we are dead. I hope tonight, maybe with freshness, the need of salvation, the importance of salvation is dawned on you. It cannot be overemphasized, the need of salvation. This is not a matter of us choosing to a certain kind of religious activity compared to somebody else's religious activity or non-activity. This is the matter between death and life. This is crucial. And sometimes we can, we can so be overjoyed with the gospel that we forget about the importance of it and the basic need of it. I'm going to keep saying this over and over again tonight. This is why evangelism and witness is so important. Because it is really a matter of death and life. Because the people that we know and love are dead. And they need life. That's what life without Jesus Christ looks like. We're, we're dead. But we're also enslaved. Verses 2 and 3 in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So not only are we dead, but we're enslaved. And we're enslaved, imprisoned by a triple lock. A triple lock. One lock would be bad enough, but we've got three locks. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The first one uh, is the world there. You'll see that. We followed the ways of this world. That means that there's a spirit around today. In fact, there's a spirit around every day that ignores the era of eternity and ignores the standards of God. It ignores the gospel of Jesus. And so most people are governed by contemporary standards rather than by eternal truth. Most people are pressurized in, by what people think rather than by what God has said. And that's why John, he writes in, in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16, for everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So people are deluded. They're lied to. 
And here's the sad reality. They're empty. They're, they're, they're simply empty, trying to be filled, try, trying to fill them, their emptiness with all kinds of other things, sex and money and power. But one day, the emptiness will hit them. The emptiness will hit them. And again, we have to see the importance of our evangelism to reach these people who follow the ways of this world. We normally talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, Paul here talks about the world, the devil, and the flesh, so we'll, we'll take it in the order that he's put it. Of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil is the wicked, hostile, detestable enemy of mankind. The devil dominates the unsaved. He is at work in the unsaved. I hope you see that. It's not just a matter of people choosing to be worldly. It's worse than that. They are actually dominated by an evil power. Now, it's interesting, that little uh, phrase, at work, who's now at work in those who are disobedient. It seems to most of the commentators, uh, and I can't see any reason to disagree with them, that there is a link to that similar phrase used in chapter 1, verse 19. And if you want to look at that, you'll see where, where Paul's talking about his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. You notice that phrase there. It's like the working of his mighty strength. Now, what Paul seems to be saying is, is this, that the magnificent power that took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is similar to the power that Satan has over the unsaved. It's startling, isn't it? The power that took to raise Jesus from the dead, that magnificent, holy, beautiful power, is like the power that Satan has over the people we're trying to witness to. It's devilish domination. So it's not just a matter of their choosing a different route in life. Horses for courses. You know, we like to do religious things on the Sunday. They like to do other things. It's not as like that. It is a fact that they are following the ways of the world and that they are under the influence of the evil one. So the shocking picture is painted here about life without Jesus Christ. This vicious and vile devil enslaves every person ever born. And that's why we say again, Evangelism is so important, isn't it? And then, of course, there's the third lock of the triple lock, the flesh, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So with the world around us, we have the devil, and since above us, we have the flesh within us as part of this triple lock of domination. <laughs> Folks, there's no easy way to say this. There is no good thing in our flesh. Not one good thing comes from our flesh. We have a sinful heart, and that's why we cannot stop sinning. 
we're driven by our flesh. So that involves worldly ambition. It involves the lust of the eyes. It involves selfish desires and evil plans. And it all comes from this tragic fallen condition that we have. Can you see how desperate we are without Christ? We are dead and we are enslaved. But we're, we're also condemned. Verse 3, the end of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. This is the crowning blow. If you're, if you're in a, a ring with a, a heavyweight boxer and he's hit you once and then twice, and three, here's the knockout blow. We're under the wrath of God. That's what it's like to live without Jesus Christ. We're under the wrath of God. Here's how one writer put it. This is his settled, personal, righteous, and consistent hatred and hostility of all that defies his will, spoils his creation, and destroys our well-being. I'll read it again. This is his settled, personal, righteous, and consistent hatred and hostility to all that defies his will, spoils his creation, and destroys our well-being. So God is not like a granny who says, oh, you are naughty, but you're still nice. God says, you're naughty, and you will face my wrath. And God does what is right. He always does. And the love of God actually is shown in his anger against that which destroys and ruins those whom he loves. So who does he love? Us. What destroys and ruins us? Sin. So how does God treat sin? Wrath. It's not like man's wrath. God's wrath is as pure as his love. How do we get our heads around that? God's wrath is as holy as his righteousness. In other words, he is perfectly angry and has the right to perfectly judge. Now, folks, I know this is hard to take, isn't it? This is hard to understand. But if we could see the consistency of this and the purity of this, we will accept the justice of this. And I suggest tonight the thing that we should fear most of all is God's hatred of sin. God's hatred of sin. That's the thing we should fear most of all. So it's not easy to take. You'll be glad to know there's good news coming. But before we can hear the good news, we've got to understand the bad news. In verses 1 to 3, in a sense, we are in serious trouble with the holy God. But in verses 4 to 6, we have the answer of God. And that's why we say it's good news. What is life in Jesus Christ like? Well, notice how Paul continues there at the beginning of verse 4. He does the same, by the way, in Romans 5. You might have noticed that I used it in my opening prayer, the short opening prayer. But God all this bad news, we are dead, we are enslaved, we're condemned, but God, but 
God, if there's only two words you can remember from the sermon tonight, may it be, but God. Okay? You know, if we weren't anything but Presbyterian, I would get us to say it together. In fact, let's say it together. But God. But God. Martin Lloyd Jones says these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Yes, in these two words, but God. Now, there are different ways we could look at these verses. Can I suggest we look at what God displays and what God does? First of all, what God displays. And there's four beautiful words that jump out of the text. There's so many other things, by the way. We can't look at every um, verse in, in detail, but we'll, we'll try and do justice. Here's the first one, love. Love. But God, because of His great love for us. But God, because of His great love for us. When we love something or someone we love them or we love that thing because of the worth of, of the object or the person. Do you understand? So it might be your spouse or it might be a steak or it might be spurs if you want three S's. There's something special about the spouse or that fillet steak or that best football team in the world. There's something lovable in that person, place, or thing. That's how we tend to love, isn't it? There's value in the thing we love. However, when God loves us, it's very different. Because His love comes from within His nature. And, and, and there's nothing lovely or lovable or loving about us. Because remember, what are we? We're dead. And we're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're condemned. And, and Paul beautifully summarizes that in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But listen to this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love towards us in Jesus Christ is a determined love that persisted without any encouragement because we were dead and we were enslaved and we were condemned. There was nothing we could do to make ourselves lovable. He loves us because of his nature. In fact, here's how one person put it. His love was victorious over our determined opposition. His love was victorious over our outright hostility. His love was victorious over our opposition and aggression. We killed Jesus. That's how lovable we are. And he continues to love us when we are the most unloving and the most undeserving. Life in Jesus Christ, what God displays, He displays love, He displays mercy. He's rich in mercy. Still in, in verse uh, 4, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. A definition of mercy is clear and outward display of pity. The clear and outward display of pity. It assumes two things. One, that one person needs it, that pity, 
and the other person is able to show it. So we need it, and he's able to show it. He is rich in mercy. Now, we don't bring much to the, the table now, do we? Because we're dead, and we are uh, enslaved, and we are condemned. We need mercy, and only God has the resources to meet that need. He is rich in mercy. He's so rich that He can dispense it to all. He can dispense it to all. What God displays in this life in Christ Jesus, grace. Still, as we move now into verse 5, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace, of course, as we all know, is that undeserved goodness given to us by God. We receive what we do not deserve. We have no rights to salvation. And, of course, we live in the generation that insists on rights, the right of choice to abort children, for instance, the right to sue anybody and everybody when you're not happy, the right to redefine marriage, the, the, the rights campaign continues. And some might say, haven't we the right, if God exists, haven't we the right, just because we're human, to heaven? And the Bible's very clear that no such right exists. If heaven is to be experienced, if eternal life is to be gained, if salvation is to be obtained, if forgiveness is to be granted, it's not on the basis of rights. It's on the basis of grace. It's an undeserved gift because we're dead and we are enslaved and we are condemned. Grace. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's why we love to sing that old hymn, Amazing Grace. And then kindness. It's expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus there in verse 7. Again, note the kindness of God is expressed in Christ Jesus. In fact, the love, the mercy, the grace, the kindness are all expressed in Christ Jesus. God is so kind to us. Kind in sending Jesus to us. Kind in allowing Jesus to die for us. Kind in knowing about the brutality and the betrayal of the cross. And still, He stuck to the plan. He stuck to the plan, the only plan, the only hope. He's so kind, isn't he? And I hope we are so glad and so grateful. What God displays, but God comes despite our deadness and our enslavement and our condemnation. He shows great love, rich mercy, saving grace, and express kindness. What a God. But what about what God does? This is what He displays. He could simply have come and left it there, but listen, He gives us so much more, doesn't He? Life in Jesus Christ, what God does. He, three things here. In fact, you know what Paul does here? He creates three new words to try and explain what he means, what the gospel says. 
The first is that he made us alive with Christ. He made us I won't go into details of the Greek because I'm in time, but um, this is what it means. He made us alive with Christ in the beginning of verse 5. So remember, we said before we were dead. Now we are alive in Christ Jesus. God, by his Spirit, breathed new life into us. We're born from on high. Three times Jesus tells the religious Nicodemus to be born again. He needed that new creation, and so do we. Lazarus was very dead. Do you know how dead he was? He was four days dead. That's how dead he was, and Jesus made him alive. Only God can do that. It's called resurrection. And we are radically dead in our sin and can only be saved by a radical spiritual resurrection. That's what God does. He made us alive in Christ. And really, so humanity is divided into two groups. Those who are still dead and those who are resurrected. Tonight, in this group here, in this building, you're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually resurrected. What group are you in? Has God made you alive with Christ? He has or he hasn't. You can't be half dead or half alive. You're either dead or you're alive. This is what he does. But there's more than that. God raised us up with Christ. Verse 6 Let's check here that we're actually reading the text here. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even, though, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. What does this mean? Well, when Jesus saves us, he does not just bring life to a dead sinner. He raises us up to a brand new position. We're new citizens in a new kingdom. We're not just turning over a new leaf. It's a life-changing, eternal experience. And we become citizens of His kingdom. Yes, for a while here, but for longer with Him. Yes, we become children of God for a while here, but with His family forever. That's why Peter talks about us being a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You see what God does? But God in the light of all that we are, this is what he does. He makes us alive with Christ. He raises us up with Christ. Christian, I hope tonight your heart is pumping now with a sense of, wow, this is what he has done for me. And then, of course, he seats us with him in Christ Jesus That's also verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Again, all of this is in Christ. We share Christ's life. We share Christ's resurrection, his triumph, his glory. We, we, We have it now and we have it forevermore. And verse 6 speaks about the heavenly realms. You know, heaven is so wonderful and so different, it actually is very hard for us, in fact, impossible for us to understand what it's really going to be like. 
but we will be reigning over the universe. We'll be reigning over the cosmos forever. Our position is safe and secure, eternally safe, eternally secure. Now, of course, it doesn't take um, much for us to see that we can't do these things by ourselves, now can we? I mean, can we make ourselves alive? Can we raise us, ourselves up? Can we seat ourselves in heaven? Of course we can't. But God, but God can and does. Of course, the point of all of this is salvation. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. It is by grace you have been saved, verse 5. Liberated, set free, made alive, raised up, seated in the heavenly realms. That's the bad news and the good news. Let's end with uh, three points of application because I think we need to not just fill our heads full of theology, we need to know what this actually means. And some of the application, of course, as I'm saying that, is actually quite theological. But anyway, here's the first one. A true understanding of our actual condition, and I want us to keep remembering we're dead, we're enslaved, we're condemned. A true understanding of our actual condition helps us understand that our only hope is God's sovereign plan of salvation, and especially the part where He has chosen us. Now, I know that some people really struggle with that. Maybe there's some people here tonight, and you really struggle with the idea of us us being chosen by Him because you thought you chose Him, and now you hear that actually He chose you. But I hope that this teaching tonight in chapter 2 of Ephesians will help you understand that you would never have chosen Him. You could never have chosen Him because you were dead. Now, what can a dead person choose? Nothing. Nothing. So, if we're going to ditch the chosen by God bit of theology, we might as well ditch chapter 2 of Ephesians as well and say, oh, we weren't really dead. So, we were able to choose Him. I hope, friends, this is helpful. He must have chosen us because we could never have chosen Him because we were dead. The second point of application is this. A true understanding of our natural human condition without Christ, and others dead, enslaved, and condemned, drives us to two things, prayer and evangelism. We must be a people who witness. It is our calling. If we really do love the people we say we love who are without Christ, then we will be praying for them, and we will seek to evangelize them. And yes, yeah, I've managed not to mention Christianity Explored this evening, but I am now. Do we really love the people we say we love? Have we invited them? At least invited them. They'll probably say no, let's be honest. They probably will say no. But have we even invited them? 
Do we love them enough to invite them? Or are we happy to see that they remain dead and enslaved and condemned? Are we really happy with that? Even though God took us from that deadness and enslavement and condemnation. He took us from that. He made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Do we want them to have that? So our one-to-one is so important. Our evangelism, our pulpit ministry has to be evangelistic, has to be evangelistic. I hope you never get tired of me appealing in this way. Christianity Explored and other kinds of outreaches are so important. What we do here on a Monday morning in Toddlin, Tuesday morning in the Tuesday morning club, Tuesday evening in Zone, right throughout the week, Sunday school, epilogues at youth clubs. Because if we really are dead, if we really are enslaved, if we are condemned, then the only hope is that Christ saves. So let's pray and let's evangelize. The third thing is that a true understanding of our natural human condition, our plight, in other words, our plight, helps us to appreciate his provision, the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One answer, one way, one hope, where we come from death to life. So there we have it. Actually, the best part, I think, is yet to come. That's next week. So why don't you come back for that? We have life without Jesus, dead, enslaved, condemned, life in Jesus, alive, raised up, and seated. May God stir our hearts and bring a reaction from that stirred heart that will honor him and glorify him and help the people we know and love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing truths uh, that some, um, in some ways we find hard to understand, but we accept that it is written in your word, and who are we to argue with that? We pray your Holy Spirit will apply the word and the application of your word to our hearts, and may we be a changed people, a people reacting to your word May it shape our prayer life, may it shape our evangelism, may it shape our theology, and may we eternally give thanks to you for all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.